Welcome back to Here and There, the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. This is Günther hosting. After a brief timeout, we are all healthy again, and we are back with an episode that I sincerely wish we did not have to do. For the beginning of the episode, we are tabling our fortnight in history, spending a few minutes on Russia's war and invasion of the Ukraine. Russia's actions in itself are unforgivable, undeniably carrying the signature of an isolated dictator. Independent journalist Mikhail Saigar noted in his book All the Kremlin's Men that even the advisors to the regime are living in a constant state of fear, too scared to oppose the will of a dictator who claims that one of the biggest crimes is disloyalty. Preempting the invasion of the Ukraine, Putin's messaging has been that the potential NATO expansion to the east, including the Ukraine, could endanger the Russian people and Russia's security. David Tafuri of The Hill noted that Putin does not genuinely believe this. It is propaganda, a term that most Germans are all too familiar with. The narrative of Putin's messaging continued but was fact-checked by Austrian newspaper Courier and then rebroadcast by Gabi Hiller of the Austrian Broadcasting Association, ORF. Putin claimed that historically Ukraine is Russian territory and a manufactured country. This has been found to be 60% accurate, the actual Ukrainian territory of the 20th century though was splintered between the old Tsar regions, the Osmanian Empire and the Austrian Habsburg dynasty. Only during the First World War did the German Empire force the creation of the actual Ukraine. Thus, to claim Ukraine as historically Russian is as historically selective, as it is disregarding the historical fact base. Korea gave this a 60% accuracy rating. A secondary claim was that Ukraine is on the verge of producing its own atomic weapons. However, there is no evidence to support that claim, not under NATO membership, potentially, or otherwise. On the contrary, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Ukraine has selected to destroy the entire atomic arsenal previously stationed in its territory. Therefore, the fact check resulted in 0% truth. Further, Putin propagandized that it has been promised that NATO would not expand to the east. This is only partially true, and even there, it is mostly anecdotal. Putin is hinging his claim on verbal statements from the 1990s in which German Secretary of Foreign Affairs Hans-Dietrich Genscher and US Secretary of State James Baker supposed to have had a discussion relating to the exclusion of eastward expansion of NATO territories. However, there is no written evidence of any such conversation. Putin is relying on anecdotal evidence without proof. However, Austrian Korea still gives this claim 50% validity. 
Moreover, there has been a genocide of 4 million people is another claim made by Putin. This has been determined to be a flat-out lie at best. For the past eight years, the continued war on the eastern border of the Ukraine has led to potential discrimination in choice of language, culture and customary habits in the Russian minority regions. Notably, Putin's incoming agreement preceding the invasion was to formally acknowledge Russian-friendly separatist areas Donetsk and Luhansk as people's republics. Subsequently, he ordered troops into the newly accepted republics for peacekeeping missions. However, while there may have been discrimination of Russia-friendly movements, there is absolute absence of evidence of genocide. This renders the acceptance of both people's republics as a violation of international law, according to Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, as the arguments themselves are rooted in blatant lies, therefore zero validity or truth. Now, what is particularly striking in the methods of messaging is the correlation between Hitler and Putin. Michael Rouen of the Washington Post drew the parallels between both dictators in a rather chilling way. Here are a few excerpts of the article, and the link is in the show notes. In 1939, Hitler claimed that millions of ethnic Germans were prosecuted in Czechoslovakia. A claim that did not hold water, and while the rest of Europe stood idly by, it was enough of a claim to order Czech President Emil Hachal to meet with Hitler on March 15, 1939. Hitler's tirades during the meeting demanded that the Nazis needed to take over Czechoslovakia to protect Germany, and Hacher must agree or his country would immediately be attacked and Prague, its capital, bombed. In similar claims, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that pro-Russian residents faced genocide in the Ukraine, relating to the 4 million victims mentioned earlier, and that this is all truly just dictated by our national interests and dictated by care for the future of our country, meaning Russia. He also noted that Neanderthal and aggressive nationalism and neo-Nazism have been elevated in the Ukraine to the rank of national policy. And how much longer can one possibly put up with this? Quite evident, once enemy and reason were established, the fundamentals of propaganda appealing to emotion while subsequently denigrating the targets had opened floodgates. Putin actually stated that Ukraine actually never had stable traditions of real statehood. It is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. Dov Zakheim, a senior advisor at the Center of Strategic and International Studies, said the argument that Hitler made is indeed very similar to the one that Putin's made. Putin is claiming that the Ukrainian government is mistreating poor Russians and In the eastern Ukraine, they must come to their defense, hence the acceptance of the two people's republics. It is essentially the same playbook, according to Zakheim. 
when Hitler actually bit off, so to speak, the Sudetenland, his argument also was, these people don't want to be part of Czechoslovakia, they are Germans. Putin is essentially saying the same thing about these people in Donetsk and Luhansk. They don't want to be part of Ukraine, they are Russians. Putin is actively striving to expand the Russian territory. Zakheim thinks that the actions are not dissimilar to Hitler, who wanted to take over all of Europe. Putin wants to restore Tsarist Russia, the broader Russian Empire. Thereby, the threat potentially increases to Finland, the Baltic states, and also to Poland. And while there are plenty of similarities between Putin and Hitler, from argument to propaganda, Putin is moving much quicker than Hitler. Where it will end is, of course, anyone's guess. Vice News, though, interviewed Ukrainians in Kiev with air raid sirens as backdrop. And the uniform concern was that today it is us, tomorrow it may be you. Reflecting upon the situation between Russia and the Ukraine that certainly affects all of Europe is, I suppose, the somber topic of today. However, we just don't want to leave you hanging with nothing but dark thoughts and clouds above your head. So we'll just roll into our favorite German und Dach things of here and there, which is an assembly of questions uh, brought to you by yours truly and, of course, the team, where we riff on what we like. Now, before we get there, what does DACH actually stand for? DACH is Deutschland, Austria, and the CH stands for Switzerland. Now, in absence of not having a, a Swiss representative here today, we may be sidestepping that a little bit, but if you do have Swiss responses to that, please email us at podcast at gaimn.org. I'm just going to hand it off the first question regarding to DACH and our favorite things is going to come from Audra. Thanks, Gunter. All right, our first question of today to all three of us is our favorite DACH city. Um, I guess I'll start by saying that my favorite DACH city is Berlin. Berlin. Berlin, however you want to pronounce it, it's my favorite. Um, I spent some time there. I spent like four weeks there doing a Goethe Institute program and fell in love with it. And I can't wait to go back. Um, it's it's just the perfect city. Erin. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I believe I, first of all, it's nice to be back on the podcast. It's been a while. Yes, it um, has. We've been super busy at the GAI. Um, I fell on the ice and got a concussion. <laughs> that's, so uh, that's my PSA for the podcast is um, <laughs> don't fall on the ice <laughs> in Minnesotans. Um, yeah, no, but I love Berlin. Um, I can't I can't believe I haven't been back since 2012, literally 10 years ago, which is crazy. Um I love the history of the city. I love the museums. I love the energy. I love the, you know, diversity, the international cuisine, the people, the music, the art scene. Um, I just love literally everything about it. So um, everyone should go to Berlin as soon as possible, in my opinion. 
I think that kind of includes me. I've never been to Berlin yet, so I, I don't even know what I'm missing. Uh, shameful, I suppose, on my end. Uh, certainly something to catch up upon in the future. So as far as my city is concerned, I am from Vienna, so of course I'm incredibly partial to Vienna. It has a lot, of, a lot to offer. Uh, it's, I think, just as significant, entertaining, and fun as Berlin. Perhaps not quite as, I would say progressive as Berlin. I, that might be fair given what I've heard of, uh, of Berlin, but there's just so much to do. It's, it's an endless array of opportunities. And if you're getting tired of Vienna, my second pick would be Salzburg. I was briefly stationed there uh, during my short stint as an MP. Absolutely fell in love with the city. It's proximity to Germany, basically just uh, 15 minutes, if that, and you're across the border in Bavaria. So really centrally located, amazing skiing opportunities, a beautiful city altogether. And of course, Mozart from there, The Sound of Music, the bane of every Austrian's existence has been filmed there to some degree. So there is, uh, of course, from an American tourism perspective, a lot to be uh, seen and I guess experienced there as well. So Vienna and Salzburg from my end. Erin, question two. Excellent. Um quick question because i have no idea about like the geography is would salzburg be included in like the folks who go skiing yes. is that one of those destinations yes, yes. yeah, yeah okay. absolutely salzburg is when you look at uh, the map of austria and the proximity to germany Salzburg is really within minutes worth of driving from what would be the southeastern edge of bavaria um nudging into Austria, so to speak. And uh, correspondingly, Salzburg is on the northern, uh, northwestern side of Austria, if you will, before you go into the actual true Alp country. So uh, Salzburg is sort of, although within the Alpine region, it is still not quite as alpinistic, if you will, as Innsbruck and other cities. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, the, G the GAI has the um, the ski trip coming up. Um, we postponed it in 2022 for obvious reasons. Thanks, coronavirus. Um, but but yeah, we should be launching that trip in um, February of 2023. Fingers crossed. Okay. Our next question um, is your favorite castle. This is a super good question, especially in light of um, some discussions we have going on, some projects we have going on at the GAI. Um, we have a new photo installation going up at the house um, of castles in Germany. Uh, for all of you who follow Audra's excellent social media engagement on behalf of the GAI, we've had some really cool posts on, on Facebook and Instagram recently on castles, which a lot of people have chimed in, chimed in about, a lot of opinions on castles out there. Um, so yes, what is your favorite castle in Germany, Austria, or Switzerland? I'll go first. Um, I put Sanssouci uh, in Potsdam because it is like the only castle that I know. I am, or the Heidelberg Castle, Schloss Heidelberg. Like those are literally the only, I feel like this question really made me realize that I need to do my homework on, on castles. Um, you know, Berlin, the Schloss was destroyed in Berlin, right? During the, um, well, obviously the Second World War. <laughs> um, 
So, and that was the city I spent the most time in. And so Sanssouci is the closest. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's accessible. It's not, it's, it's a very like flat castle. It was, uh, there's a lot of greens. Um, you're not like climbing a hundred million stairs like you do at a bunch of castles. Um, so I thought it was a really sort of nice, relaxing place to visit. Audra. Yeah, quite a unique take on a on like a castle or a palace for sure. Um, I I think Hohenschwangau um, is my favorite castle. It's the castle that's like right below Neuschwanstein. It's like in that same area, but it was the, like originally the family's like home. Like it was like the original castle. Like then then they built Neuschwanstein or King Ludwig did. And yeah, I I, I enjoyed that one because it's not as like big and <laughs> I don't know it's it's smaller it's on the smaller hilltop it overlooks the lake below a lot better than Neuschwanstein does but it still has these like fabulous views it sits among the trees it has an amazing sort of courtyard area with like a fountain and the gardens and, and the walls are very cool but it's not so inaccessible as Neuschwanstein is as you have to trek all the way up this giant hill mountainous hill almost to uh, get to it so I, I really enjoyed my experience there <laughs> Neuschwanstein is where I parked my drone in a tree really? it, yeah uh, little p little PSA here if you do bring a drone to uh, Europe uh, Dach region Germany Austria Switzerland you do have to have permission to fly it uh, yours truly of course uh, immediately violates violated uh, the rules. Uh, frankly, I was unaware of the rules. And uh, fate, of course, turned around right away, karma, and kicked me in the butt. And I parked my drone in an absolutely inaccessible area in a tree across from Neuschwanstein, wanting to make this epic montage of letting no. the drone fly around it. Yeah, that didn't quite work out so well. But to answer the question directly, Burg Greilenstein, <laughs> before we go into a deep conversation about this, uh, Burg Greilenstein. Greilenstein is a castle that uh, truly has a moat with a drawbridge and as it is, would, as it would be classically to be expected. And it certainly doesn't uh, usually surface on the, the tour maps, if you will. And the reason why I chose it particularly is because my dad, uh, a retired teacher and professor, had a class of, that was, I was, I think, 10 or younger, uh, which the class uh, set out to restore Burg Greilenstein, particularly the metal fence that led around the moat. And I remember just being there as a young kid, trying to help out, mostly getting in the way. And then uh, we actually stayed at the castle in sleeping bags inside. Oh. Yeah. And I was with uh, older kids at that point because the, uh, the class that was there was a little bit, little bit older than I was. But I just got to go along with my dad. And one of the kids uh, didn't have anything better to do but to terrorize everyone being the Schlossgeist, so the castle ghosts, and basically scared the living bejesus out of everyone, including myself, and I think I'm still traumatized to this day because I clearly remember that uh, somehow I had the feeling that the drawstrings on my sleeping bag are actually trying to strang strangulate me. That was, uh, I don't know if it's true, if it was imagination, if it was a response to the uh, castle ghost, 
But that is my vivid memory of Burg Greilenstein, also therefore my favorite, because it really is etched into my mind. Yeah. Interesting reason for it to be your favorite then. <laughs> well, it's also because it really satisfies the definition of what you would say a classic castle expects to be with the moats and the drawbridge and almost like Tolkien style, if you will. Mm. All right, moving on. Uh, the favorite Dach Museum. I mean, there are plenty to go around, but uh, quite interesting to hear from the two ladies here, what their favorite museums are. I'll go first on this one. Mine would have to be the Vienna Museum of Natural History. We do have a full-scale dinosaur in there. Uh, it's just really a beautiful museum. It's across from the uh, Museum of Art History. Maria Theresia is sitting in between the two museums. It's just in and of itself. Those two installations are amazing and uh, once you are done with those two, which is going to take you at least a day or two each, then I would say Vienna's Museum of the Crown Jewels, where everything that is in the multi-million dollar range that has ever been worn by Austrian royalty is currently on display. Absolute and highlight, uh, highlights to go there. And Erin. Nice. Um Quick question about the drone, though. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> so why does one have a drone? Is it for, like, photography purposes? Yes, it's uh, just simply to go into areas uh, or get angles that you commonly wouldn't get. And uh, I don't really look good swinging from trees, uh, particularly in the uh, hinter walled, so to speak, behind the scenes of, uh, of a castle in an area that would really be lending itself to free climbing. Uh, when you mm -hmm. actually look at Neuschwanstein, across from Neuschwanstein is sort of this, uh, this rock half mountain that would really be an interesting free climbing area, but it's also heavily wooded. And uh, with the woods uh, came the obstacles. Mm. So <laughs> is your is drone turn. still... Is your drone still there? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Unless the wind <laughs> shook it loose and it fell down or something. Uh, maybe somebody recovered it. Uh, this is uh, was the outcome of basically being an inexperienced drone pilot with two grand of ambitions and, uh, yeah, paid, uh, paid the price. Okay. Well, taking your drone to safer pastures, <laughs> um, like museums, uh, so... <laughs> My favorite, so yeah, Berlin has so many museums and like the sad thing is I, I don't think I even like went to them all. I mean, it's, they, there must be like a hundred some museums. We should look up how many, but I love the Pergamon Museum. I know that's not, you know, German things per se, but the, it's such a wealth of ancient relics and architecture that you almost feel like you are there. Um, it, yeah, I just, I, I used to work across the street, um, and I could see the Pergamon Museum from my office window. I mean, I had this tiny cubicle, uh, as a paid intern and then program assistant. Um, but I would often just go and walk around on my lunch breaks and it, it never got old. Um, I also thought the Hamburger Bahnhof, um, Museum der Gegenwart. Oh no, now we're talking about grammar. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were right. Um, Museum der Gegenwart. So that, that works wonderfully well. It's okay. Yay, we have a German teacher <laughs> on the podcast. Love it. <laughs> um, 
so yeah the museum of the present it has like rotating exhibits a lot of like super modern art um it's in an old train station so it used to be it's called hamburger bahnhof because it used to be like where the train between berlin and hamburg um ended or it was like this that that, that station um so it, it's it's a really interesting museum um and they sometimes had like concerts or talks there so yeah what about you Audra I'm gonna guess Audra's museums are also in Berlin <laughs> yeah but I was actually as you were talking about museums I actually remembered another museum I went to in Cologne um Museum Ludwig it's it's a cool mixture of like modern art and also like older it's not like old old art though like it's not really their thing it's it's modern art and more abstract older art I guess you could say um I really enjoyed my experience there but yes I also really like Berlin museums um I, I did look it up and there are 170 museums in Berlin that's gonna get you covered for a day or two <laughs> yeah, yeah. A couple days probably for sure <laughs> um i really enjoyed i'm a big art gallery or art museum person i like going to them i have a good knowledge of art history generally speaking so it makes them i think a bit more interesting to go to um but i really liked the berlin art library in berlin obviously it's it's again a nice combination of really like older works like you got you have albrecht Dürer in there and then you also have just like newer stuff as well so I really liked going through there and then the old National Gallery in Berlin I enjoyed that just like as a change of pace from art museums um I also had a really fun time there with some friends I made at the Goethe Institute it's going to museums with friends definitely makes it more fun particularly if it's a museum with like sculptures and structures and architecture and what have you that's what i have found so those are my uh three favorite museums i guess not not to deviate too far from the path but uh is this audra a more recent occurrence that uh the, the group of 25-year-olds or younger actually are gravitating more towards museums again, or is this sort of a uh, fringe uh, sort of thing? I, I suppose it depends on the context. I mean, I, I think maybe because of the people I was around at the Goethe Institute are those that are more academically driven. Like you wouldn't take a, lang a language intensive course if you didn't like learning or being in the classroom or what have you. So I think to that extent, those students or those folks that like to learn continuously or have a background knowledge in specific areas of history or art or what have you, I think museums are more appealing. But I, I do think there is this sector of like Gen Z that they go to museums for the photo op and they go to <laughs> whatever because it like looks pretty, but not necessarily like to learn. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think I can really say. I think it's still pretty split in the way that it's always been, but perhaps for different reasons. Okay. Thank you. Who's up? I think it's Audra. I think it's me. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, the next question is uh, our favorite moment or moments from being abroad slash growing up in Dach. That last part is specifically for Gunter. So. 
Thanks. Um, I guess for me, like going back to my Goethe Institute experience, there was this day where we had an excursion through the Goethe Institute, an optional excursion, and um, we ended up in Potsdam. And I, afterward, like the tour that we took, we ended up at like a brewery, like they, spe like, they specifically like, and I guess not a brewery, a beer garden, because we're in Germany, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, and we ended at a beer garden and that was very intentional. And they were like, you can stay here and like, enjoy this space if you want to or you can like follow like the tour guide back into the city if you would like and me and a small group of people around my age stayed at this beer garden and we stayed pretty late and then afterwards we like walked around for a while and it was a beautiful gorgeous like uh june evening so the weather was perfect and then we eventually like got on our respective trains and went back and there's something very freeing about taking the U-Bahn or the trains um, in Germany, like just like hopping on and you know where you're gonna go. Like once you get that mental map down of like what train you need to take, it uh, feels pretty powerful. So I don't know, I think just casual hanging out where it didn't feel like touristy, but it like, it's just fun. I think those are my favorite memories for sure. Which is also yeah. something that I've heard from a lot of people just uh, via the social interwebs, so to speak, that hanging out with anyone in Germany feels safer, feels freer, feels uh, just, uh, I guess, more relaxing than hanging out with somebody here in the US uh, in, the, in the park system, for instance, in St. Paul, where... I guess uh, it's just simply a different type of hanging out, uh, perhaps a little bit looser, so to speak. Uh, alcohol is permitted in public, uh, provided, of course, that you meet the age requirements. But it's just a different type of hanging out is what I have heard. Does that, does that hold water? Yeah, and I think also the because there are more green spaces, you get to be outside and it's more enjoyable. It's not always just... Like the beer gardens are green spaces you know what i mean whereas like here if you go to a brewery typically like it's concrete and like you have like kind of uncomfortable chairs and like you can't just like sit on the ground and i don't it's it's it is slightly different so i think having more green spaces although since you just mentioned brewery i have to plug our friends <laughs> over at utepils uh, with their outdoor patio the little creek that runs uh, by the sides. And uh, the interesting yeah. thing at Utipils is when, I, when we talked with them is that you can actually have food catered uh, or you can bring your own food just as long as you buy their beer. And their, their outdoor space is absolutely just beautifully done. So once we get to more conducive temperatures, I would say you should absolutely head out there and perhaps meet us at one of our future trivia nights out there at Utipils. Over to Erin. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, we'll have to maybe reference um, our episode that we did with Dan, the president of Utipils, because I, I feel like they went for the German-European beer garden vibe mm -hmm. and that sort of indescribable. You're just like, I, I do feel like I'm almost over there when I visit Utipils, for sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm like Audra. Uh, I also like public transportation <laughs> in Germany. So I think on my favorite memory, I just, I think, you know, there's like a different feeling when you are 
in Germany or another country for like a prolonged period of time versus just like visiting for a few days. And so I, for me, I wrote like, was thinking my one of my favorite memories was just like commuting on the the Strassenbahn because like in Berlin on the tram um you know I had to sit on the tram for 25 minutes or whatever um but not only did I feel like super super grown up because I was commuting into an office that was like my first job that I wasn't like making sandwiches but um you know it went through like the the Hackischer Markt and like the middle of Berlin and Friedrichstrasse like you almost see like Checkpoint Charlie and just like being a German major and having been a history major and just like commuting every day like to see that out the window um was just like the coolest thing for for me at the time um and and it would be to do that again so <laughs> You know, well, absolutely. we open up the GAI Berlin branch. Oh, I Audra and I are there. <laughs> We're there. Yeah. We'll, we'll just do the podcast from there. But I, I have to say, I am absolutely fascinated by both of you actually referencing public transportation, which is something that is so absolutely just normal to me to jump on a tram or in the U-Bahn uh, subway and go from A to B. In fact, when... I was uh, much smaller and shorter, uh, first grade school. They put me basically on the tram and I took my 20, 30 minute tram ride, got off at the tram, tram station and then walked another 10 minutes to school and did that both ways. No, not both ways were uphill, although it sometimes felt like it. Uh, but of course, different times and maybe it was a little bit safer back then, but I don't think really that uh, the the system, so to speak, has changed significantly. Kids are still riding public transportation on their own accord, knowing exactly when, how, and where to go. And this is just something that we don't see in the U.S. So both of you referencing the Straßenbahn, public transportation, as a favorite moment is kind of astonishing to me, but equally just really validating. Yeah, and it's funny what you say about like children. So my my sister and my niece live in Germany in Hamburg. Um, and I think when my niece was starting fifth grade, um, like one of the first things they did the first week of school is they did a scavenger hunt in like small groups of students where they had to take public transportation like throughout. So they, they weren't like alone, but they were like in groups of students. And so the purpose of that, the scavenger hunt or the exercise was to learn how to use public transportation in their city um, without, by I mean, by themselves, essentially. And so, you know, my sister was American and me, we were like, oh my God, is she going to be okay? <laughs> like, she's 10 or 11. And, and yeah, so, so they still do that. You know, since you mentioned the scavenger hunt, a uh, quick little anecdote here as well. Uh, I think it was sort of mid-high school. We organized a chase, if you will, cop and robber, so to speak, where we had teams uh, of two that came together. And one were the good guys and the other ones were the bad guys. And the objective was uh, within a certain area, Bezirk, uh, district, on the map to chase the other party. And back then, of course, payphone, everybody had a roll of coins, uh, quarters uh, here in the US. 
and we just popped them into the payphone, called a central number. One of our guys that wanted to originally participate had broken his leg, so he essentially played uh, phone duty concierge. So when somebody called in, saying, hey, I'm here and here, where is my closest target? They revealed the latest call in from somebody else, good or bad, to see if we can dragnet, so to speak, our uh, districts. And that was inherently rooted in the availability of public transportation and public communication, such as uh, the, the public phone system. Something that was unbelievably fun Unfortunately, we only did it once, uh, but something, again, that I can see happening again in, in Austria or in Germany with public transportation, certainly not so much here in the U.S. Now, uh, throwing my thing here in real quick, uh, favorite moments of growing up there. Thank you, Otto, for accommodating the Austrian on the show here. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my favorite moment, starting to ski when I was two and a half. My dad popped me on skis, uh, put me on a hill, and said, go. And uh, the, the story goes that I was in my little bindings in my short skis, and I slid down and, uh, of course, landed on my butt and immediately did not want to go skiing again. So dad took me out of the skis, and he was a uh, ski instructor at that point. And I saw him skiing, and suddenly, of course, uh, the fire got... Uh, essentially relit and I asked to be put back on the skis and I guess that went on for a couple of days until I got the hang of it and much like uh, here in the U.S. Uh, dads play baseball and football with their kids we just ski and I think this is also now representative of how we ended up in the Olympics uh, usually when it's about snow sports uh, that go down the hill we are doing relatively well and me starting at two and a half is not an exception it is almost a rule, and that is before we consider that there are people that are living in alpine regions who are really, really good at this. I was not one of them, although I can hold my own. All right, next one. Uh, let's move on over to Erin, because I've been doing enough talking. Okay, uh, no worries. I also feel like um, people do that in Minnesota, the, the learning to ski early. So Okay. I didn't know that. Uh, where, where, where are the mountains? Never mind. Uh. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. It's it's not really my thing, but I, I have friends who like have taken their small, small children skiing. Um, okay. So besides public transportation, uh, the next question is something from Deutschland, Austria, or the Schweiz you wish we had in the United States. Um, so I will answer this first. Um, just this is something I personally feel strongly about is, and I think there's um, a number of statistics on this is that, you know, the United States is like one of the only developed countries in the world that has like the shortest paid maternity leave. So, um, I mean, it, you know, it's some companies, it's eight weeks, some it's 12, 12 is considered generous. That's like, your baby still can't like hold up its head, like sometimes at that age. So um, I, if I had a magic wand to make one thing change and be like it is in Europe or Germany, um, I would have the one year paid maternity leave, you get to go. And then um you know, be home with your kid for a year if you want. I mean, it's like, you don't have to. Um, and then your job is, is waiting when you come back. 
and also um, affordable, high quality, state subsidized childcare. So that'd be cool. Audra. And, um, yeah, Audra. Yeah, kind of echoing back to um, something that what we talked about earlier in terms of the transportation system, I think. I, I don't know, maybe it's because I have the Twin Cities like metro system right outside my window. So I think about it a lot because I hear it a lot. And so I have to, I, I, but I don't use it like ever. And so to have a transportation system like throughout the US or between larger cities or what have you, I think that would make so much more sense and having more walking paths and biking paths and just the way we view getting around is so much different here. And so I think if we took some of the things that are happening in Dach and applied them to here, I mean, granted our spaces are different too and the way that we've set up our cities is much different. So there are some things that really can't be changed but there are things that, are, that can be changed. And so, Although I, I do have to say, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we are doing better than in many other cities regarding bike paths and so forth. Yeah, and I think Madison, Wisconsin, I think they are the most bike-friendly city in the United States. Um, I believe I read that somewhere. So, I mean, the Midwest, we're doing fine. Um, but, I, yeah, I still, like, feel this hesitation, though, to, like, mm -hmm. maybe go for a walk sometimes or bike biking seems biking is really <laughs> dangerous in the twin cities and i often get angry at bikers sometimes mm. as a driver so i think having bigger and clearer bike paths would okay. be a huge win makes sense okay uh i'm gonna front load my response here with uh, there is the potential that i'm gonna catch some heat for this and if that is the case uh please uh, podcast at g-a-i-m-n dot org and then reference hey what Gunther said um, personally what I wish we had here in the US is a essentially functional system of uh, social responsibility that includes socialized healthcare and I know that socialized is this demonized term that is frequently misinterpreted but when I look at uh, just the rate of personal bankruptcies in the US and how many of those are caused by healthcare costs then I just shudder because where I'm from, there is no such risk. Uh, comorbidity factors that are caused by stress, whereas the U.S. has stress that is basically off the charts due to an employment system that is not in favor of the employee, but certainly stacked in favor of the, uh, favor of the employer, integrally co basically contributes to, to many health conditions. And then you add to this that the worker safety in a sense of income is practically not guaranteed. So basic minimum income does not exist. Whereas where I'm from, we have a minimum level of income. No, this is not going to see you through, but 750 euros is going to get you further than nothing at all, which is also corresponding to the level of homelessness that we experience in Austria, which is significantly lesser than, of course, here in the U.S., and it's also just simply how we take care of one another, where taxation, which is, again, uh, the next really poo-pooed on term here in the U.S., uh, nobody likes to pay taxes. I'm the first one to say I have no problem with that because it does contribute to the systems that we need, whether that's roadworks, uh, fire departments, police, uh, healthcare costs. 
and so forth. It all makes sense, particularly as you get older and the probability of you having some form of negative health event, event just really outperforms your contributions. So in that sense, you have five, six, seven hundred dollars a month that you spend on employer-provided health care, and then your insurance company kicks in 80% of your heart attack costs, which uh, could be a quarter million dollars, give or take, depending on the severity. You're still shouldered with twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars to pay out of pocket. How? That's just a question I want to leave open-ended here because I don't, of course, have the individual answers for anyone. But I think there is a greater consideration to be applied, particularly considering that this is a country that has resources that make it easily possible to actually execute against it. That we are not doing this, as far as I'm concerned, is a failure of social responsibility. Now, as I said in the beginning, I might be getting some heat for that, if that's the case. Email us and, hey, what Gunther said, and I'm more than happy to invite anyone on the show and we'll have a discussion about that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I know this is an important issue to you. Um, like it came up on the two episodes that we did with um, Jess and Alex mm -hmm. from Americans in Germany drinking whiskey, um, which everyone should go back and listen to if you have not because those guys are hilarious and they have some really great insights about living in Germany as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that they would definitely agree with you on those points. Well, it's also um, heavily informed by what I'm doing when I'm not working at the GEI, working with right. uh, the homeless population in St. Paul, having heard their stories, having understood what this is actually about, from veterans to people with uh, what would be considered minor records, so to speak, uh, based on, on legal infractions, and the almost impossibility to gain foothold again is striking. I was trying to think of a segue into our next question. There, there is no um, good one. Let's just, let's just move there. ahead. That is the segue. <laughs> that is the segue. Segue to Audra. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> the next question is our favorite grammar concept. Um, for me, grammar is not my strong suit. Gunter is like dancing on the Zoom call right now. He is so excited. Um, but for me, Grammar and I have never been friends. Um, we don't get along and that's okay, but we like try to work together sometimes. So for me, verbs um, are probably the, the grammar thing that makes the most sense in German. Um, it's very satisfying to whether it be, I know Erin has this same um, grammar thing that she likes, but gea, ging, gang, iskagangen, um, easy. That makes sense in my mind. So I appreciate verb forms. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I have to agree. Um, I feel like if we had flipped the question and called it like, what's your least favorite grammar? It'd be like, <laughs> for me, it'd be like everything else except for <laughs> verb forms. Because I just, you know, I had my regular verbs, I had my irregular verbs, I got to memorize them and like life made sense. It was okay. It was not the bane of my existence, like adjective endings, which I still feel like I muddle through. Um, you know, I would love to, so if I could wave a magic wand and make like a new class at the GAI, it would be for like 
people who like learn German like 20 okay now I'm aging myself but like you know 10 20 like people who were German students but like need a crash course refresher on the basics um because I feel like we don't fit into that box of like you know, just going to like a Bay Einst class. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing that out there. If, if there are other people listening to the podcast who are like, yes, Aaron, you should do a refresher course for former students at the GAI, then we'll make it happen. But, um, but yeah, that's a very long way of me saying, I hear you on verb forms. Um, we could just do that all day. Oh, you're yeah, so cute. Wait, but before Gunter jumps in, I have to say too that like even someone that's in their early 20s like me would totally benefit from a class like that because for me, we didn't talk about grammar in high school. It wasn't until college that I even learned that accusative, nominative, genitive were like things. I oh, learned my. I like we did not talk about it. I think maybe that was my German program's way of like keeping us in the program because it was just like fun. <laughs> like, we, we talked about fun culture things and we learned fun vocab. We didn't do anything. I think the only grammar thing I learned was to add goth on a verb and then you like it kicks it when you kicks it to the end of a sentence and then you're past tense. <laughs> I think that's like <laughs> Gunter is not happy with that. I'm, I think I'm cringing a little bit, not too much, just a little bit. <laughs> At least that's all I retained anyway. So, so you mean no. verbs with prefixes is what you kind of remember without uh, going into a full-on uh, German session here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For one, I no. also, oh, sorry. Go ahead. One more favorite. I just thought of one more favorite just to like branch out from verbs. <laughs> well, no, this is also a verb, right? Are the modals verbs? Modalverben, yes, they are. Modalverben. I also like the modal. Those like made sense to me because like ich will and then you, do the infinitive. Ich will kochen. Yes. Ich mag lesen. Yes. Beautiful. Very much I will, to the I confusion. will take the modal any yeah. day. Modal verben are incredibly powerful. So in case you're a little bit confused as, as the listening audience, obviously there's a lot of grammar to go around. Uh, regular verbs, modal verben, and the strength, sentence structure changes and all kinds of good stuff. Yes, that's why we're offering language classes. If you have any questions about those, gaimn.org, just to plug the classes again. Um, as far as, as grammar is concerned, and I find this very interesting what Audra said, it, it seems that the new way of teaching, quote-unquote, is through simply using German, speaking German. It is sort of a duolinguish kind of idea. And while I think that's a good idea, perhaps in the beginning, to get some travel German under your belt, to actually get functional German under your belt, I argue that this is actually not a good idea because once the greater concepts comes in, come in to really understand the construction of a German sentence, uh, the application of cases, which, uh, which is um, masculine, which is feminine, and so forth, so the article structures, this is getting incredibly confusing for people who have learned through the Duolingo method. And that's been a battle I've fought in the education system for quite a while. I, again, find utility in learning through just spoken German if you want to take the odd trip here and there. But if you actually want to speak German, a class that is built on the fundamentals, which is grammar, is absolutely instrumental to have any kind of future progress. Now, to that degree, my favorite comment or concept and comment on this would be 
that of uh, all the case structures, which are so easily confusing, the accusative case to me is my favorite grammar concept. And the reason for that is actually quite simple. We start teaching German in nominative, so just straightforward. However, German has four cases. And the first case that I usually teach is the accusative case because only one thing changes. And there are all kinds of conditions that need to be met for the accusative case to kick in. You can get all that in the German class. But what's beautiful about the accusative case is it's the first sort of I'm dipping my toe in the water of case changes. And once you understand the fundamentals of the accusative case, doing the other cases is actually not as difficult. Yes, there are moving elements still, but once you break through the barrier that is accusative, you can get the rest done just as well. So that's actually why it's my favorite concept. Okay, you sold me on accusative <laughs> case too. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I like it too. <laughs> All right, uh, I haven't done a question in a while. Um, and it's uh, also apropos, uh, the favorite food from Dach. I'm, I'm from Vienna. I can't deny it. My favorite, favorite, favorite thing is an authentic Wiener schnitzel mit Kartoffelsalat, potato salad, and then as dessert, a Germknödel. Now, a Germknödel is a yeast ball, if you will, usually with plum filling and vanilla sauce. It is any dietitian's worst nightmare. But it is just beyond amazing. So maybe, maybe, and this is my shameless plug on air for Aaron, maybe we need to talk Helga into a round of Wiener Schnitzel and Germknödel. Let's just dive into Austria for one of our Zoom YouTube cooking shows. Yeah, well, we are doing Knödel on March 19th, um, Saturday. Uh, you can sign up for $5 at gaimn.org. I think she's doing two kinds of knoodle though, the um, Zemmel knoodle and Böhmische knoodle. And um, we'll, we'll all be there on March 19th, but it's glad to know that there are even more types of knoodle that I was not aware of. <laughs> yeah, so there, there are categories of knoodle. I can't believe I'm diving into this. But for instance, a Semmel knoodle would be something to just dip into sauce. It has essentially breadcrumbs in it. That's how my grandma made it. And a Germknödel is a dessert knödel. So there's really a difference in, in utility of the knödel, the use case of the knödel. Enough for my end. Uh, Audra, what's your favorite food? Um, this is probably the most basic thing I could say, but lately I have been craving it. Um, it's a great street food and also a great sit down at a German restaurant food if you want to really look like a tourist, I guess. Um, but currywurst, currywurst, for me, I have been craving it a lot lately. And there are a few places to get it in the Twin Cities, but uh, I have not made the trek out to do so yet. And that's just an easy go-to food for me. Don't know why. It's very basic, but uh, it's basic for a reason, because it's good. I think mine was also pretty basic. But it was like more associated with like beer garden memories when you're just like hanging out outside or and you just get, you know, you go up to the stand and you just get like the the bratwurst with zemf and a brötchen. And that's, it's like so simple, but so fresh and delicious. 
I feel like we also kind of rec re recreate that a little bit at the GAI with what we serve at Oktoberfest and Deutsche Tage, and that, that makes me happy. Um, but I also was a vegetarian for years and years, like in high school. Um, and then uh, it was in Germany that I actually started eating meat again and was like, hmm, this is delicious. <laughs> this is hard. Um, <laughs> great. Okay. Is it my turn to ask a question? Yes, it is, ma'am. Yes, it is. Okay. Yay. Rapid fire questions. Um, our favorite food that you cannot get here, or at least a good version. Um, well, I, this is where you talked about the, the, the canoodle, Gunter. But um, so, so slightly separate question. You know, so I've never been to Aki's Boathouse here. Um, but I don't know if he makes like a Kürbis Kambuchen. Because like that's, that was my obsession in Germany. Like I, bakeries, pumpkin seed, rolls. It had to be that. Um, I don't know if you can get that here. I haven't seen it uh, actually, but uh, you fired up another thought in my in my head that I have to bring uh, to your attention here in a second. Uh, Audra, also a basic food: um, French fries with mayo or pommes mit mayo. I don't know. It's very street foody, or like after like a night at a beer garden or whatever. Like I did this a couple of times it's just not the same like the mayo here just like isn't the same like the fries are just not the same like it's 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 the stupidest thing <laughs> but i do miss it um so what you're saying is that our potatoes are not like your potatoes <laughs> sure yeah that's <laughs> but uh yeah that and also like spaghetti ice or you know, spaghetti looking ice cream. I, I haven't really seen, also like the ice cream culture here is so much different than it is in Europe in general. And so like, not even just Doc, like, like I'm a big ice cream fan. And so I do enjoy. Well, the, the difference culture. between gelato and ice cream, right? Uh, the really Italian fashioned ice cream, uh, there is just no comparison. And I have also, even with the, the great, uh, renowned ice cream shops on Grand Avenue, for instance, uh, as well as I think, uh, no, they closed down. So the last remaining one is on Grand in St. Paul. Uh, they just don't come close. Uh, but for American standards, amazing ice cream. Uh, I did talk about the authentic Gamknödel, which, by the way, can also be found in the frozen section in Austrian supermarkets. And then you just toss it into hot boiling water. You get the same outcome. It's just absolutely magnificent. And uh, Aaron uh, brought up an old thought that I have battled with for the longest time because it is such a staple in the Austrian cuisine. It is pumpkin seed oil, oil, Kürbiskern oil. Uh, it's cold pressed out of pumpkin seeds. It's uh, essentially dark green in color, has a little bit of a nutty flavor, goes amazing with salads. I've looked for the longest time here in the U.S. to find it. I did find some outlets at atrocious pricing, and then ran into it locally at the Stillwater Oil Company. They have Kürbiskern Öl. So if you really want to get a little bit of Austrian flavor on your potato salad, for instance, or on your Caesar salad instead of uh, using the usual dressing, use some Kürbiskern Öl, some pumpkin seed oil. I can only highly recommend that. What I cannot recommend is to get it on your clothing because that will not come out. Good to know. Very... Very useful insider tips coming out <laughs> of the podcast today. Um, 
Yeah. Audra. Our favorite comfort food within Dach. Um, for me, it might just have to be pumice with mayo still. Like, I think that's, <laughs> like it, it, it is a comfort food. Um, nothing else is coming to mind at the moment. So I guess that's my answer. Okay. Mine was like super boring, so I'll, I'll do it next. <laughs> also basic. Uh, I think the yogurt tastes different um, in Germany and probably Europe. Yeah, I just like would just love to have like a big full fed yogurt with muesli. It's just, you know, here everything is so like processed and flavored and um yeah, that would be that would be comforting for me. It like feels healthy, but I know it's like a calorie bomb. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sticking with it. It's the Gangknödel. I mean, uh, in case you're seeing a little bit of a trend here, yes, you're right. It is uh, just this this ball of yeast with vanilla sauce, and uh, it's just second to none. Once you've had it, you will absolutely never forget it. I can I can guarantee you that. So. Somehow I'm going to have to figure out how to make it at home. Then again, I cannot be trusted in the kitchen. Uh, just ask my wife. Uh, but maybe we can talk Helga into uh, making that at some point just as well. I think that's going to be my mission for 2022. We do have a few more questions left, uh, some uh, relating to transportation and then some artists going back to sort of the museum extension, if you will, and music where we will plug a couple of things that we're doing at the GI Trust as well. Let's go to favorite mode of transportation while in Dach. Now for me, this is inevitably the motorcycle. I've been a passionate rider for well over 20 years. Um, it's just the most natural way, so to speak, of quickly experiencing uh, large uh, amount of areas and just getting the miles down. And I, th I suppose it's a little bit easier in Austria because the density of amazingness is just much greater than it is in the, in the US. You would just have to travel greater distances to see really amazing things, not to say that the US doesn't have great areas such as, of course, Yellowstone with Beartooth Pass, uh, Grand Canyon, I mean, the highlights, uh, Glacier and so forth. But the distance between A to B is just significant. In Austria, not much uh, different in terms of amazingness, but certainly different in terms of distance. And to experience that with a helmet on, visor up, and just smell the air and nature while you're cruising through it on two wheels, you can't really beat that. If you're now thinking about getting a motorcycle, there are great tours in Austria. <laughs> Audra? Um, again, I'm back on the biking thing. Um, biking when I can. I did enjoy that. I did fall off a couple of times trying to get up on the curb. Um, it's fine. That's another story. Um, but mostly the U-Bahn, I think, for me. It, there, again, it, it, there's something really powerful about being able to ride it by yourself and like once you get like your path or your um, yeah I guess your path back home figured out from point A to point B and you know and you don't have to look at your phone and you don't have to I don't know look lost <laughs> it is very cool since we don't get to have that feeling ever really here yeah I also said train but like distance trains you know like the regional train mm -hmm. um Nice scenery, listening to music does not require any work or thought on my part. <laughs> so yeah, that I missed that for sure. Um, 
let's see our next question. Let's do like um, two and one. Let's do a double hitter. Favorite artist and favorite musician or music coming out of the region. Um, let's see. I think for artists, I said Kaspar David Friedrich, um, mostly because Audra did a really nice Facebook post a few weeks ago. Um, of his work. And I remember seeing his paintings at the Alta Nacional Gallery in Berlin. And they're just very haunting and beautiful. Um, for music, there was this band um, that we listened to called Wir sind Helden. We are heroes. I, I think they still exist. Um, I should Google them. Um, but they had this song that when I was living there in, in 2003 and 2004, was playing all the time, like in every club, every radio station. And it was Dank Mal and the lyrics to their like monument. Would you say, how would you translate Dank Mal, Gunter? Like monument? Monument, yes. Memorial? Monument? monument, okay. And it was the, the, the chorus to the song, I will not sing because we want people to keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> but um, the lyrics say, Sie haben uns ein Dank Mal gebaut. And that was um, kind of like a rock song. So anyway, and I was like, oh, I understand the words. Yay. <laughs> Another advantage of learning German. There you go. <laughs> right. Audra. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, for me, I've learned a lot from making those Facebook and Instagram posts uh, for the GAI. And so Casper David Friedrich was, there is also a new favorite of mine. Um, but I do enjoy the work of Emil Nolde, or <clears throat> I do have, through my like art history classes that I took in college, I do have more knowledge of Albrecht Durer. Um, it's kind of a goofy one, perhaps, to like, for someone that's like younger to like care about maybe, but I do quite enjoy the darkness to what he's doing and the detail. Um, it's it's very interesting and the iconography is it's it's, it's very it's stunning so those are mine okay well as uh artist of fine art for instance uh, sculpture and so forth is an austrian irish artist gottfried hellenwein uh he's made a couple of pieces that are quite in your face in terms of symbolism. Uh, he doesn't hold back much. Uh, it's art that we haven't necessarily seen in the U.S. in that fashion. Uh, there is um, potentially some nudity involved if you want to look him up. Uh, just make sure that the kids are perhaps not close by. But uh, very socio-critical, if you will, in terms of application. Certainly somebody where I like the style and the expression of his arts uh, and somebody who really stuck with me. Um, ever since I've seen his first work. As far as music goes, Reinhard Fendrich, which was also my suggestion for the GI playlist on Spotify, he is just an Austrian icon. The guy's been around since, I think, uh, forever, um, at least as far as I can remember. And he recorded a song in 1989 on the album From Time to Time, From Zeit to Zeit, uh, which was I Am From Austria. And it has become this national hymn, if you will, that uh, the, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anthem? Yes, anthem is the word I'm looking for. That has not necessarily replaced the actual national anthem, but it is 
almost seen as the new national anthem. Again, 1989, I am from Austria, Reinhard Fendrich. It's one of the very few songs that when I'm not at home, but here in the U.S., that almost makes me teary-eyed, and that says a lot. Moving on to the next question. I did realize I forgot to mention my favorite musical artist. <laughs> right now, it is Lena Mali. She's a younger, I think she's like 25 She's a 25-year-old German musician. I think she's technically in the like pop category, but a lot of her stuff does tend to be like softer. It's not it's not poppy by any means. It's a little it's it's softer, a little bit more. It's leaning into indie. It's it's a whisper of indie, but it's not quite in that realm yet. Um, so I do really like listening to her, and her lyrics are easy to understand sometimes I find when you listen to German music as a non-native speaker it's you just you listen you're like okay that happened cool and then you look up the lyrics later and you're like oh yes that makes sense now (laughs) but uh I do like her for that reason as well well if anything a good reason to learn German is how to interpret musical lyrics (laughs) (laughs) all right last question that we have uh Erin do you want to take it yeah. And, you know, we're like in the dead of winter here, so it's a good question for um, it being really cold and yet more snow. Um, what is your favorite, how do we word it? What is your favorite geographical climate within the region? Um, so, yes, I will go first. Um, so, yes, living in Berlin for two and a half years, I had like three winters there. Um, winter is very gray so i'm going to start with the worst which is the winter which is not cold and but it is so gray (laughs) like i thought i would lose my mind i was like where is the sun it is very gray uh and it gets dark so early and then you have summer in berlin which is my favorite which is like this magical time it's sunny everyone is on the streets nobody's working it looks like people are literally in cafes and beer gardens like all day long and it stays light super late and everyone is like everyone is actually happier like in the summer in berlin uh so that is my favorite um how about you audra yeah, it's funny that you bring up the grayness. I mean, I think we all kind of, I mean, gray, winter is gray, but uh, I, I follow quite a few uh, influencers that like live in Germany on social media, um, whether they be from the US or Canada or otherwise, and they now live in Germany. And the influx of posts about, oh, it's no longer gray, or like the sun finally came out for the first time that I've been seeing in the past like couple weeks alone, um, it, it's, been funny because people really do appreciate that little bit of sunlight that comes after the gray gray winter um but for me I yeah so summer in Berlin I got also got to experience that that was lovely summer in Germany in general um I did a short trip with one of my uh or my high school exchange partner who lives who is from Germany and we went to um, Bonn and Cologne and we did sort of a week long trip. Um, and that was really fun in the summertime. I'm not sure how it would have been in the winter, but then I also did uh, get to experience Southern Germany and Austria in the winter time when I went there with um, 
my college's choir for a choir tour. And that I think was, it was really cool specifically because we were in this sort of like mountainous region of Bavaria going into Austria, sort of like Gunther had said earlier, I think our destination was Salzburg. So like it, it was gorgeous in the winter, but it was also a snowstorm. So we were stuck on the, on the highway for quite a while, but uh, gorgeous nonetheless. I mean, great views from the charter bus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, although I grew up in Vienna, I am born and bred Viennese, if you will. I ended up in a tiny little town in southern Austria, about 65,000 people in the state of Corinthia. It's a town by the name of Villach. That's V-I-L-L-A-C-H. About 65, roughly, thousand people there. The claim to fame is its proximity to Slovenia and Italy. Within 20 minutes, you can be in either state. It is a thermal region, so you have thermal baths uh, that are available year-round. You have phenomenal skiing within just 15-20 minutes uh, worth of driving. You can get into Italy, like I said uh, before, within just minutes into Tarvisio and then just head on further down into Italy. You can get into Slovenia just by hopping over a pass. And what was interesting is uh, behind the scenes, so to speak, I never thought that I would actually end up there because the first time I had a brush with Filach was uh, during my young school years. Uh, I'm going to nerd myself here a little bit, not date, but nerd myself, uh, playing chess tournaments in Filach and then ending up there, getting my start in broadcasting as an on-air talent. Uh, brought me to this tiny little town and uh, just fond memories. Uh, I would go back in a heartbeat if the opportunity were to present itself. It's just as far as entertainment, uh, nature entertainment and activities and just leisure of life is concerned. It is just an incredible luxury to live in this, uh, what would be considered a small town, but that small town just packs a mighty punch. Sold? <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like of Duluth. I mean, just like what you were saying with like the size. I, I think Duluth, Minnesota is like a little bit bigger, but it, I think it packs a mighty punch. Uh, it, it, it certainly anyway. does. Yes, yes, it does. Yeah. All right. Well, this was uh, an interesting walk uh, of, uh, I guess, experiences and history and personal little stories baked into it. If you have any remarks of any of the cities, of any of the food, of any of the artists that we mentioned, podcast at G-A-I-M-N is your ticket. Let us know what you think. And again, the invitation to talk about uh, anything else is always there. So just let us know what you would like us to riff on, and we can certainly make that happen. Let's wrap it up. Another episode of Here and There is in the box. As always, thank you to Erin. Welcome back. Thanks. And Audra, thank you. Glad to be here again. Uh, yes, indeed. And of course, our call to rate us stands. Please throw five stars our way. If we're not deserving of that, let us know why. Send us an email to podcast at GIMN.org and let us know how we can improve to the degree that you will get us the five stars that we so desire. Other than that, this is Gunther signing off. Another episode of the Here and There podcast of the Germanic American Institute. Until next time, goodbye.